Another record day of COVID infections. Social gatherings are where we are seeing significant transmission of COVID-19 in our province. The hotspots that are driving the spike. Spitting incident on a city bus. Hey, come on. How the interaction turned violent. Three have uh, suffered catastrophic fire damage. And another suspicious fire destroys Vancouver businesses. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us tonight. We're going to start with that devastating fire in Vancouver's Mount Pleasant neighborhood. A number of businesses and homes near Main and Broadway were gutted in what's being treated as a case of arson. Paul Johnson joins us from the scene with the very latest tonight, including an arrest. Paul. Hey, Chris, check this out just here. In the past 20 minutes or so, the last remaining ladder truck on scene has resumed hosing down the wreckage. So clearly there are still some hot spots in there that they're concerned about. This was a very quickly changing and dynamic storyline today. First news that another business had caught on fire in Vancouver. Then that fire spreading to destroy or damage at least three other businesses, destroy the homes of a handful of people who were living above those businesses. Then late this afternoon, news from the police department that this may be an arson. It's the second time this fall that a major fire has destroyed multiple businesses in Vancouver. We tried to get a control of the fire and where the business where it appeared to start, uh, but the fire was very intense and traveled quickly, um, involving three additional buildings. The fire appears to have started in a popular restaurant called Frenchies, quickly moved up into the attic space of the wood frame structure, then started jumping building to building in this commercial and residential block of Main Street. Fortunately, anyone who may have been home at the time was able to get out safely. It appears that uh, four people have been displaced, uh, but no one was injured, no one hurt, uh, which is uh, great news for this kind of devastating fire. While the fire department had no immediate theory about cause, Vancouver police confirmed Thursday that one person was arrested on suspicion of arson. At one point, plainclothes officers could be seen holding what appeared to be an evidence bag with materials presumably gathered from the scene. What kind of business were you offering? I had a pizza, pizza called Pizza 604. Mac Mondi is one of the business owners here who's likely facing a total loss. A smoke shop and a beauty salon also appear to have been destroyed. Well, one of my friends called me this morning and I just came and uh, it was horrible. Of course, the other big story unfolding connected to this fire has been the traffic situation. Uh, this blocked off uh, the central part of Vancouver for much of the day today. While it's improved considerably, there are still big delays along Broadway and along Main Street. We're still in the midst of rush hours, so if you're expecting someone and they're running late or you were thinking about driving through Vancouver, pay attention to what's going on here. Try to avoid this area if you can. Chris? Slow going for sure. Okay, thanks very much, Paul. That's Paul Johnson reporting live in Vancouver for us tonight. Now to the pandemic and a second consecutive day with a new record of COVID-19 cases across B.C. Provincial health officials have confirmed 274 new cases today. That's after 10,398 tests, which means our positivity rate has jumped the 2% benchmark to 2.6%. We have 12,331 total cases. No new deaths have been reported, so that remains at 256. 
71 people are in hospital with 24 of those patients in the ICU. 10,114 are considered recovered, leaving us with 1,920 active cases and 4,425 currently in isolation. So two straight days of record infections has Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry threatening to bring in stricter measures governing events like weddings, funerals and other family events. Henry says large gatherings are directly responsible for the record-setting spike in new cases and that has to change. John Wall reports. As COVID-19 creeps back into long-term care facilities. A little concerned because she's gone through two hip replacements. The worry about vulnerable seniors like 91-year-old Teresa MacArthur is making BC's second wave feel all too real. She had her breakfast separately from, you know, they were taking turns, I guess. So they're just somewhat self-isolating them. Fort Langley Seniors Community, just one of six long-term care homes in the Fraser Health region faced with coronavirus outbreaks. Even more startling, 274 new cases in this province. Sets another record for a second day in a row. New cases stemming from social gatherings are spilling over to other locations, to other parts of our community. Behind the surge, super spreader events like weddings, funerals and celebrations of life. We may have the best intentions to keep them small, to make sure that we uh, aren't having buffets, but it is hard. And right now, it is not working. A stern warning from Dr. Henry. Nothing is off the table to try and flatten this rising curve. We will use all the tools that are available, whether that is conditions tied to wedding licenses, restrictions on numbers in indoor gatherings, or other measures that we know will be effective. In Kelowna, BC's first school outbreak. Five confirmed cases, including students and staff. A cohort of 160 people are now under self-isolation. There was transmission happening in the school environment that we're not quite sure how yet. The school board says it could go back to first wave measures if the outbreak spreads. If at one point we have to extend the period at home, we're going to put back in place what we did between March and June last year. Whether it's moving to new schools or back to long-term care facilities, the first surge of this second wave in B.C. is proving this virus is unrelenting. And as colder weather pushes people indoors, the true test is about to begin. John Hua, Global News. One month ago, when the election was called, many British Columbians expressed their dissatisfaction with John Horgan and his decision to send us to the polls during a pandemic. Well, now with case numbers spiking... Will the current COVID surge hurt the NDP? Richard Zussman takes a look. It's been hovering over the entire BC election, COVID-19. Now it has spread right into the middle of the debate with two days until voting day. Our case loads are lower per 100,000 than every province, including Saskatchewan and Manitoba, right out to the Maritimes. NDP leader John Horgan on the campaign trail holding a virtual rally. Full marks to uh, those operating room uh, staff, nurses. Defending the work British Columbians, Dr. Bonnie Henry and his government has done to curb the spread of the virus. This after a record-breaking 274 new positive cases Thursday, mainly isolated in Fraser Health, where Horgan believes voters should feel confident going to the polls. And I'm confident that British Columbians should be safe and comfortable and secure in going to vote on Saturday. More than a million people have already voted in advance. And no cases of the virus have been linked to the polling stations. Public opinion polls continue to indicate voters believe Horgan has done a good job managing the virus. 
The question now is whether back-to-back record-breaking days will turn praise for Horgan into punishment from voters. His high card in this in this election is competence at managing the epidemic. Now, a surge in cases might call that into question, but I think at this point, the numbers are such that it would probably more likely provoke a rallying to the premier than the opposite. Great, how are you? Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson in Tawasin today saying it's not the right time to question public health, but not ruling out pushing for regional restrictions if elected, something Dr. Henry has rejected. Regional approaches to the epidemic have been followed in the UK, in Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, but not in British Columbia. Oh my God. In Sydney, Green Party leader Sonia Firstenau once again questioning why we are in an election campaign. And the calculation was made by John Horgan that it was okay to take the risk of an unnecessary election in this pandemic. An election ending as a new wave of the virus seems to just be beginning. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, let's bring Keith Baldry in for more on the timing of this spike in infections, Keith. The Liberals and Greens obviously using it as ammunition against Mm -hmm. John Horgan. Is that likely to have an impact? I don't think so, because nothing they've said so far has had an impact at all. Every public opinion poll we've seen, I think there's been more than a dozen now, uh, has shown the needle is not moving no matter what happens. So uh, not surprising that Sonia Fersenau and Andrew Wilkinson returning to the theme that they had on the very first day of the campaign, that we should not be in an election at all because of that big number we saw yesterday and before we saw the big number today. But it's a a little late to try to use this effectively in a campaign. As Richard noted, uh, more than a million people have already voted. So clearly, they don't consider this to be a dangerous election. And to Richard Johnson's point in Richard's piece about how basically people are fearful of change right now. They want certainty. That makes it very hard for Wilkinson and Furston to make an argument this stage in the campaign that we shouldn't have an election, that somehow COVID's out of hand, because right now it's confined to one health authority in particular, that's the South Fraser uh, area of the province. It's going to be very hard to make those arguments in the dying days of the campaign, because nothing they said so far has moved the needle of public opinion. This is very much is an election for the NDP to lose. One full day of campaigning remaining, too, and then the big election show. We'll talk to you tomorrow for sure, Keith. Thank you. All All right, with the election just a couple of days away, the last thing you might expect is competing candidates taking a united stand. But recent disturbing events targeting one candidate in particular in Coquitlam have led to an unusual act of nonpartisanship and solidarity. Nadia Stewart has more. Putting partisan politics aside, the Liberal and NDP candidates joined the B.C. Greens' Nicholas Sperling in a display of solidarity. There is a story behind this. It all started on Wednesday. While campaigning in the coquitlam Meyerville riding, a man showed up with these signs. They showed up with their J.K. Rowling sign and I realized what the intent was. And on the back of it, it talked about gender ideology. So clearly not just a supporter of J.K. Rowling, but also someone who is clearly opposing trans people. When Sperling shared this photo on social media. She's demonstrating her right to participate in democracy. And someone's trying to take that away. She received a unanimous response from her political opponents. Both B.C. Liberal candidate Will Davis and the NDP Selena Robinson said they would stand with her. I couldn't possibly put myself in her shoes for a moment. So if the least we can do is uh, show up, stand up, stand with her, um, that's, that's, a, that's, the, that's the least we can do. We all have to stick together on these issues like hate, like COVID. There are some things that are nonpartisan. 
that deserve our attention and we have to stand up against it together. It's the only way to combat it. Sperling says she is used to being a target for harassment, especially after she was outed in the 2017 election. And more recently, when J.K. Rowling threatened to sue her over a comment on social media. I was receiving about 10 hate messages a second at one point, I counted. Even though she knows there will be more hate messages to come, she hopes this sends a clear message. This isn't a partisan issue. This is an issue where we can all come together. Nadia Stewart, Global News. A warning now about some disturbing video circulating online that shows a spitting incident on a Coast Mountain bus that turned violent. In the video, taken on a route near Hastings and Nanaimo, an unmasked woman can be seen spitting on a man. He gets up and pushes her, eventually shoving her right off the bus when the doors open. She fell on the sidewalk outside. Metro Vancouver Transit Police are aware of the video and they're investigating. They were not able to say what started the dispute or if the parties involved have been identified. In the video, you, you can tell that the, the uh, woman isn't wearing a mask. But again, we have limited information here, so I, I don't want to guess what, uh, what transpired prior to the incident. Um, that's not shown on the video, and that'll be part of our investigation when we have the opportunity to speak to individuals that are involved. Police are urging the public that if you do see someone who is not wearing a mask as required on transit, that you do not put yourselves at risk by confronting them. Charges have been laid against an anti-LGBTQ self-described preacher after a confrontation that sent a Vancouver man to hospital. The Bible says a man, a woman shouldn't correct a man. So go home and talk to your husband. And, and read your 42-year-old Dore Love and another man were preaching anti-gay messages in August when Vancouver resident Justin Morissette told them to turn it down. A physical altercation followed and Morissette suffered a badly broken leg. Police say Love has now been charged with aggravated assault and a warrant has been issued for his arrest. And Vancouver police have released security video of a suspect in a frightening robbery in Yaletown. Police say a young woman was robbed at gunpoint on October 9th just after 1 a.m. The male suspect followed her from the Roundhouse Skytrain station and approached her at Mainland and Helmkin demanding she hand over her purse. The suspect is described as white, 5 feet 7 inches to 5 feet 9 inches tall, with a slim build. He was wearing a black hooded sweatshirt and a black mask, covering his nose and mouth. There's also video, as you saw, that shows him putting on a hockey jersey with the number 36. If you have any information about this incident or who this person is, you're asked to call 911 or Crime Stoppers. Well, it is still officially fall, but some of us will receive an early blast of winter starting tonight. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with the details of a special weather statement. Christy. I sure hope you have your snow tires on all across southern BC. That's right, Chris. So these areas here highlighted in white, uh, 5 to 15 centimeters of snow starting tonight and especially through the day tomorrow from the Chilcotin region through the Fraser Canyon east to the Alberta border. But the south coast area, not that 5 to 15. We're talking about wet snow over higher elevations, mainly above 300 meters. So that could be areas like Highway 4 out towards Tofino. And for Metro Vancouver, higher elevations of the North Shore, uh, Westwood Plateau, Burnaby Mountain. Now for our region, we're expecting that possibility of wet snow tomorrow morning. I wouldn't rule out a flake or two lower down, but it really is going to be a mainly rain event for much of Metro Vancouver. All right, we have been warned. Thank you very much, Christy. 
Got to get those snow tires on. All right. The Vancouver City proposal that seemed insulting to war vets coming up. The bungled handling of free parking for veterans and how City Council tried to make it right next on the News Hour. And Joe Biden face off in another debate. This one may not be more civil, but at least it will be quieter. We'll tell you why coming up on the News Hour. And how a North Vancouver gardener is growing a reputation for huge pumpkins. That's coming up later as well. Right now, though, the city of Vancouver has voted to allow free parking to veterans year-round. That decision comes in the wake of a major report from city staff advising against it. Jordan Armstrong shows us how this turned into an emotional battle at City Hall. Last weekend, we learned two things about Vancouver City Hall. One, at a time of restraint, some managers got merit-based pay hikes the day after property taxes were due. Two, city staff recommended against year-round free parking for veterans. That recommendation is unusual because staff is supposed to help council implement its policy decisions. And last year, council backed the free parking idea. Staff didn't just reject it. They also recommended scaling back the parking perks veterans already get. When I first heard, I was absolutely enraged and extremely disappointed. The staff report pointed out there are 12,000 people in the city with veteran status. But it failed to mention just 350 Vancouverites currently have a veteran's license plate. A glaring omission, says the 90-year-old who championed the plates. Council better stick to their guns. It's important that they've made this resolution unanimously, and they sent it forward for implementation, and they should make sure it's done. In the end, council did vote to greenlight the free parking as a one-year trial, unanimously defying the recommendation of staff. We tried to be very clear that we really felt uh, that veteran service to our country should be appreciated. Um, we've had technical concerns about tying that uh, to free parking. Paul Storer is Vancouver's transportation director. He wouldn't say if he is among the managers to receive a merit-based pay bump October 1st. The optics here, at a time when city managers are getting merit-based pay increases, yet city staff is recommending veterans lose their parking perks. Do you find that troubling? You're not going to answer that. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Up ahead, disappearing women become the story of the decade. DNA from 33 women was found on his farm. Our look back at the coverage of the case against serial killer Robert Picton. Also, why the early 2000s included weather that we'd rather forget. Just cleared a three-car crash here southbound at mid-span on the Alex Fraser Bridge, but this is the leftover volume. Backed up solid to Westminster Highway on the 91 and backed up right over the Queensboro Bridge as well. For 47 years, Kermac Collision and Autoglass have provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood. Visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Global BC's 60th anniversary in partnership with Connect Hearing, the number one physician-referred hearing provider. For years, women, mostly from the downtown east side, were going missing, but police refused to acknowledge a serial killer might be preying on them. 
And then a weapons call to a Port Coquitlam pig farm in 2002 would reveal a sinister scene. What unfolded was one of the worst serial killer cases ever. Robert Willie Picton was eventually convicted of six killings, but linked to dozens of others. Ted Chernecki now with the crime of that decade. On Saturday, October 24th, Robert William Picton will turn 71 years old in prison. He's 44 in this now famous video taken by a BCTV cameraman. At the time, we're doing a story about his soaring property taxes. Picton is telling us his 40-acre farm is now assessed at $7 million. Eight years later, he'll be telling police he's killed 49 women, wanted to make it an even 50, but then he got sloppy. Most of his victims come from Vancouver's downtown east side. Family and friends of dozens of missing women keep saying there's a serial killer, but police refuse to say the S word. Nothing has come to light yet that clearly states that there is somebody killing these women. Then, in March 1997, sex worker Wendy Lynn Eistetter is found running naked and wounded near the farm. Picton will tell police she stabbed him twice in each arm and in his throat. But it's Picton who is charged with attempted murder, a charge that's later dismissed because Eistetter is a heroin addict and her testimony deemed unreliable. In the next five years, before his final capture, at least four more women go missing. In July of 98, Wayne Lang had started a missing women's website. His friend Maggie DeVries complained to police about her sister, Sarah, missing since April. I certainly believe that foul play is involved. A decade later, a public inquiry will hear the gory details and how a tipster in the summer of 1998 calls police to say Willie Picton's making comments to other people. That he can, quotes, easily dispose of bodies by putting them through a grinder which he uses to prepare food to feed his hogs. It'll be almost four years before an army of forensic experts descend on the Picton farm and begin a lengthy investigation looking for traces of DNA. DNA from 33 women was found on his farm. Evidence will be presented that in February 1997, the First Nations Summit brought the missing women, women issue to the attention of the police. Picton is charged with 26 counts of first-degree murder. For logistical reasons, he's only tried and convicted on the first six, but of second-degree murder. However, Justice James Williams sentences Picton to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years, the maximum. Picton is now approaching 19 years in custody. Ted Chernacki, Global News. Well, any look back at the top stories of the early 2000s has to include weather and one storm that really blows them all away. Here's meteorologist Christy Gordon now with what we all remember but would probably like to forget. That's right. The impact of this storm apparently is still apparent, I should say, 14 years later. We're talking about Stanley Park windstorm of 2006, of course. Now, the storm hit in the early morning hours of December 15th in an unprecedented event. This was actually the third 100-plus kilometer-an-hour windstorm to hit the south coast in just five days. The region was already trying to recover when the last and strongest storm hit the coast. The storm produced... 
gusts up to 158 kilometers an hour off the coast of Victoria. There was damage across parts of Vancouver Island, but the most significant was Vancouver's crown jewel. Stanley Park endured ferocious winds with estimated gusts to 120 kilometers an hour for more than three hours. This was a straight-on blow from the west with Category 1 hurricane strength. The damage was horrendous. More than 10,000 trees were either uprooted or broken like matchsticks. One section of the park was completely unrecognizable. Power lines were everywhere, transformers had blown, and there was mudslides and extensive damage along the seawall. It took crews months to clean up. In all, there was $100 million in damage around the city, and it would take $9 million to restore the park. In the days and weeks after, there was a huge outpouring of support. Global BC employees and Jim Pattison put on a telethon to help raise money. And thanks to our generous viewers, we actually contributed $2.7 million to the restoration effort. There was some good that came out of this windstorm. For the first time in over a century, there were gaps in the forest canopy. Now a bit of a view, but more importantly, experts say the down trees actually allowed for a much needed renewal from an ecological standpoint. Now, if you're wondering, could we see a storm like that again? The short answer is yes. We tend to get storms, windstorms like this every few decades. For those who remember, Stanley Park was also severely damaged by Typhoon Frida in 1962. Amazing stuff. And uh, yeah, some of that footage brings back those memories. Very cool. We'll check in with you a little bit later on, too. Thanks very much, Christy. Still ahead, what's killing owls on Vancouver Island? In this particular case, it was a well-loved, well-known owl. Another death has experts pointing to the possible culprit and growing, uh, growing confidence in a COVID treatment, why it could see much wider use. Good evening. Once again, over what's left of this much earlier fuel spill from this morning. It's got the Highway 17 off-ramp blocked from southbound Highway 99. Kermac Collision and Autoglass have been family-run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a fuel spill in Delta. This is the same fellow who told you this is going to end by Easter last time. This is the same fellow who told you that, don't worry, we're going to end this by the summer. We're about to go into a dark winter, a dark winter, and he has no clear plan. We're opening up our country. We've learned and studied and understand the disease, which we didn't at the beginning. When I closed and banned China from coming in heavily infected and then ultimately Europe, but China was in January. Months later, he was saying I was xenophobic. I did it too soon. Now he's saying, oh, I should have, uh, I should have you know, moved quicker. Donald Trump and Joe Biden facing off again tonight in their second and final presidential debate. After the debacle of the first debate, changes were made, including muting the microphone of each candidate when the other is making his two-minute statement on any issue. So far, things have been more civil. Back to the B.C. election now, and a couple of Tri-Cities ridings have become crucial in this election campaign. Port Moody Coquitlam and Coquitlam Burke Mountain are expected to be in play for both the Liberals and NDP, and they've gotten a lot of attention from both parties' leaders during the campaign. Aaron MacArthur reports on Battleground Tri-Cities. Things are changing in the Tri-Cities, one of B.C.'s fastest-growing regions. But the issues here... The same as everywhere else this election. People are talking about transportation. They're talking about schools. 
They're talking about health care. Coquitlam Burke Mountain, the definition of a swing riding. Created in 2009, it was a liberal seat until it flipped in 2016 in a by-election. The liberals took it back in 2017 by a scant 87 votes. The polls suggest the NDP are now out in front, but MLA Joan Isaacs thinks she can win. I know all of those 87 houses, and I think I got another 87 this time around. The demographics here have made the race as close as it's been. Large tracts of single-family homes tend to vote liberal. But the rapidly urbanizing core, much younger, with much more support for the NDP. What's happening on the ground in the riding, how well organized the, the different campaigns are, their ability to get out the vote, can really uh, make all the difference. The NDP have poured resources into flipping this seat, bringing in former MP Finn Donnelly. Being a very tight riding, I am not taking anything for granted. So every vote matters, every vote counts. So I'm talking to as many people as I can. Coquitlam, Burke Mountain, one of a few ridings in BC that actually has a Green candidate. Considering the margins here, the Green vote could play a role deciding the winner. We get caught up with strategic voting in our current system, and I think that only uh, benefits the larger parties. It doesn't benefit people when they're not voting for their values. It's a riding the NDP want to win and one the Liberals need to hang on to. Both leaders making stops here in the final days of the campaign. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. In health matters tonight, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved the antiviral drug remdesivir as a treatment for coronavirus. The FDA had granted an emergency use authorization for remdesivir earlier this year, and since then the drug has become widely used for hospitalized COVID-19 patients. It was given to Donald Trump when he was diagnosed with the virus. The drug can now be used more widely for COVID-19 patients that require hospitalization. Health Canada gave remdesivir conditional approval in the summer. No word yet, though, on when it might get full approval here. Still ahead, the backyard gardener setting records in North Van. Pretty easy to get one to about 500 pounds. His secret for growing pumpkins, you need a crane to lift. And in sports, the Canucks sign a young star, but that means someone has to go. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. A wildlife tragedy in Saanich is sparking renewed calls for a ban on rodenticides, poisons that kill rats and other rodents. Residents of a neighborhood near Saanich's Cuthbert Holmes Park are mourning the loss of a longtime park favorite, Ollie the Great Horned Owl. As Kylie Stanton reports, they say his death was completely preventable. The owl is usually sitting on this perch during the day. For weeks, Deanna Pfeiffer has been coming out here to take a look. There's no sign. Now she's fearing the worst. Yet another owl may have lost its life, adding to the death toll. Owls are um, dying off at an alarming rate throughout BC, and it's due to rodenticides. Rodenticides are rat poison. Ollie, a great horned owl, is the latest confirmed victim. For nearly a decade, he had been living in Cuthbert Holmes Park, becoming a fixture in the area. Many now mourning his death after he was found lifeless at the side of the river. It's really um, senseless and tragic. 
Owl Watch BC has been advocating for an outright ban on the poison, widely used to control the rodent population. Now it seems the message is starting to spread. The use of rodenticides is something that our council has spoken up against. They're not permitted in our own buildings and park. We're not using them. But it seems that around homes and around some businesses, there may be some ill-informed, inappropriate use, and we'd like it to stop. Saanich is not alone in this. In fact, there are several municipalities here in the Capital Regional District and in Metro Vancouver now banning the dangerous poison. They're hoping the province will do the same, saying there are alternative solutions that are much safer and more humane for the rodents themselves. Rodenticides are non-discriminatory, so animals that, um, that eat it uh, will die a slow and painful death from internal bleeding. Um, it takes several days for an animal to die of this um, cause, and uh, in that time, other animals could actually uh, consume it. That appears to have been the case with Ollie. His body has been sent for a necropsy. But it's the irony of it all, making the situation that much more difficult to accept. It's counterproductive to use rat poison because we're killing the very thing that is helping keeping nature in balance. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Saanich. Well, you'd be hard-pressed to find any place more precious to Vancouverites than Stanley Park. We mentioned it a little earlier, and now a decade-long study has been released on the health of the park. The report by the Stanley Park Ecological Society has good news and bad news. On the plus side, the park's tree canopy has recovered from that devastating 2006 windstorm that we mentioned earlier when thousands of trees were destroyed. Data from a five-year period between 2013 and 2018 shows an 8% increase in the tree canopy thanks to those trees that were planted after the storm. The bad news, though, is the park's aquatic life isn't doing very well. Water temperatures are high in Beaver Lake and Lost Lagoon, and oxygen levels are low in Beaver Lake. The thing with Beaver Lake, it's infilling at a quite rapid rate. And so some of the reasons behind that is the invasive uh, water lilies. Um, as it decomposes, it creates a big biomass. And so it's becoming shallower and shallower. And that's an issue for increasing water temperature in the summer. The report says the park's aquatic life is on red alert. And without corrective action, it will only get worse. Beautiful sunny day to be out in the park or just about anywhere in the lower mainland today. But uh, yes, we are getting cold in some areas and they could turn white even, I hear. That's right. An early blast of winter across southern BC. In case you missed it earlier, I want to highlight that we have the possibility of wet snow across the south coast, mainly over higher terrain above 300 meters. For Metro or Vancouver Island, you'll see that overnight. And for Metro Vancouver, likely tomorrow morning. So we're talking about higher elevations of Westwood Plateau, Burnaby Mountain, North Shore Mountains for uh, areas like that. And snow for inland regions, 5 to 15 centimeters of snow from the central uh, interior uh, right down through the Caribou as well as in through the southern BC area right through to the Alberta border. So this is tomorrow morning. You can see it spreading right across the region that most amount of snow will happen through the day tomorrow. It is going to shift out quite quickly. This is a quick moving storm and as it moves out we have a cold air mass that's going to shift in. So the skies will clear and it will get cold for your weekend everyone. You'll have to bundle up when you're going to vote. In the meantime these are your highway uh, conditions. We are expecting through the day tomorrow significant snow 
snow, especially on the Coquihalla, Allison Pass, as well as the connector, 20 centimeters possible. Northern BC, sunshine, a clearing trend through the central parts of the province. Southern BC, certainly uh, expecting snowfall, but a few areas will warm up to just above freezing, so you may see a change over to rain in the afternoon, but not for long. And then for the south coast region, we may see breaks of blue sky towards the dinner time hour, and that's when the cold air starts to shift in. Yes, lots of sunshine Saturday and Sunday, but it is certainly going to be chilly, and I'll leave you with a gorgeous fall photo from Coquitlam. Thank you to Davy Chewy for that. Another beautiful shot of the foliage. Thank you very much, Christy. All right, there's Squire right now joining us with a look ahead to uh, sports. The bank account's in overdraft right now for the Canucks, <laughs> isn't it? They got to give some money back. <laughs> uh, they are over the salary cap, but they can. They still have time to work that out. But Jake Vertanen has a new two-year deal. That's why they're over the cap now with the Canucks. And of course, he's happy to be staying with the home team. Obviously, there's a bright future with the Canucks organization. And the way things are with the roster right now, Jake will be given a big chance at being on the top two lines. All right, we'll talk to you a little later. Squire, also tonight, the giant pumpkin patch of North Vancouver and how this gardener gets them to grow so big. Squire's here with sports. Take it away, Squire. All right, the Vancouver Canucks have uh, loaded up shotgun Jake for two more years. They avoided arbitration, gave Jake what he really wanted, which was a two-year contract because the Canucks were trying to get him originally to sign a one-year deal. Vertanen will make just over $2.5 million per year. That's what will appear on the salary cap, which does put the Canucks over the salary cap, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But first, we want to talk about how this contract and the departure of Tyler Toffoli means Jake is going to get a real chance to be a first or second liner next season. In for Jake Vertanen. Vertanen scores! Jake Vertanen has the skill set to be a top six forward in the NHL. It's just from game to game, you never know if Jake will apply those skills. But it appears he will get a chance on one of the top two lines once the new season begins. With Tyler Toffoli gone, there's really not a lot of options for the Canucks who are tapped out salary cap-wise. Jake's well aware his inconsistency has held him back over his first five years with the Canucks. I try not to take nights off. I wouldn't say I try to take nights off. It's not like I'm not trying, but, you know, just trying to be consistent every night. Um, you know, doing the small details. I mean, Greener and, you know, our coaching staff talk about details a lot and making sure we're doing the little things. Vertanen's saying all the right things, but will he apply them? He sometimes looks satisfied with being just an okay NHLer. The motivation has to come from within. Bertanian's reputation for coming into camps out of shape has also been a huge factor in his development. So he's addressing that by training with teammate Tyler Myers at his home in Kelowna to get the work habits and nutritional habits to a much higher level. Obviously from the training to eating habits and you know meal plans and the whole thing uh, that we're both doing together, which is pretty unreal. Um, nice to have a teammate too doing it with me. Myers walks in, here's a shot, scores! Jake Vertanen! Vertanen did score a career-high 18 goals in 69 regular season games last year, but just two in 16 playoff games. 
which prompted Jim Benning to say he expected more from Jake in the postseason, where power forwards often shine. It's yet another sharp reminder for Vertanen that he needs to be a much more impactful player on the Canucks. I want to be a responsible guy, you know, in different situations, whether, you know, it's power play, if I can, you know, start somewhere on the PK if I have to, you know, I want to start being, being able to, oh, I don't know, open uh, the opportunities for me. I want to make, make sure that uh, I want to be able to do that. Okay, roughly the Canucks are now a million and a half over the salary cap, but they do have some options to get underneath. One, of course, is trading someone for a player who makes less money, or better yet, trading a player for a draft pick, which means no money in return. Another is a buyout, Brandon Sutter. If they bought out Brandon Sutter, they'd save roughly $2 million this year, but he would be on the books the year after for about a million dollars. I'm not so sure ownership is very keen to buy players out right now. The other is Michael Furlan starting the season on long-term injury reserve, considering his concussion issue. So there are a lot of options still for Jim Benning. All right, to the NFL tonight. The NFC least, the worst division in football. It's the Giants and the Eagles. That's Daniel Jones, who's had some trouble doing this this year, throwing touchdown passes, but does get one there to Golden Tape. But the uh, Giants are still down 10-7 to the Eagles at halftime. Uh, Tiger Woods not having a good day at the Zozo. He won this last year, but you're not going to win it hitting these kind of shots. This is wayward. This is going to where the horses like to eat in the hay. He was four over, second worst today. Only one guy is worse at five over. Although Adam Hadwin didn't have a great day either. Three over. Uh, this is an interesting way to hand the putter to your caddy. But when things are going bad, maybe that'll change your luck. Leader, Sebastian Munoz, minus eight. Very nice. Oh, you want to see something cool? I'll show you something cool. Kamara Roof of Glasgow Rangers today in the Europa League. With moves and then from beyond center. Anyway, we'll do. He's going to go for goal. That's in. Oh. I think they counted that off at 54.6 yards or something like that. Yeah, 54.6. Longest goal ever in Europa tournament history against Standard Liege. This was in Belgium. And uh, that is brilliant. There you go. Certainly is. Thanks very much, Squire. Here's Andrew now with what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. And thanks, Chris. Vancouver Council is set to vote tonight on a mandatory mask policy. Council is hearing from speakers on whether masks should be worn at all civic facilities, including city hall, libraries, recreation centers, and theaters. And police have put out an alert about a man wanted in connection with a double murder in Alberta who may be here in B.C. We'll let you know where he may have been spotted. Those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Chris. All right. Thanks very much. And when we come back, that garden of giant pumpkins in North Vancouver and how one gardener is doing it. All right, a North Vancouver man has one of the most spectacular Halloween displays in B.C. And it's really just a couple of pumpkins, but they are massive pumpkins. The largest weighs in at 923 pounds or about 418 kilograms. Jeff Peltier grows huge pumpkins every year, but this is the first time he's had them displayed in his front yard. Both were moved from his backyard by a crane and a flatbed truck. 
Pelche usually enters his creations in a pumpkin contest, but it was canceled because of the pandemic, of course. So he called in master carver Robert Turiff, who turned the largest one into a xenomorph from the Alien movies. Jeff has named it Muriel, lovingly, after his late grandmother. Good seeds, which, uh, you know, several of us in the province can help out with that. Uh, good soil, and then a lot of TLC. You, these take a bit of care, um, but uh, it's pretty easy to get one to about 500 pounds. And that's the big thing that we're looking for, is more people who are interested in doing this. You know, we're more than willing to help out, mentor new growers, and, and get people interested in the hobby. Sounds like Peltier should expect some phone calls. Once Halloween is over, he's going to harvest the seeds from his pumpkins and compost the rest of them. Most of the prized seeds are already spoken for. They've been bought by growers all over the world. But he's eager to help amateur growers who want to get into the hobby. Sounds pretty cool. I'm guessing it's no good on the patio, eh? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's a lot of carving, as Christy and I know, with, yes. with the kids. Like... That's a massive scoop you'd need to be able to get into that thing. Think of all the pumpkin seeds, though. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is true. Okay, last word on weather before we go as we head into the weekend next, tomorrow. Rain and snow pushes in overnight for the south coast. It's mainly rain, although we could see wet snow over higher terrain above 300 meters into tomorrow morning. All right, we'll keep an eye on it. Keep it right here for all the details on your commute tomorrow morning. Thanks for watching. Good night.